bad, bad addict. Um, every time I was able to get a loan, I was doing drugs. I've been in prison four times, twice in the state, twice in the feds. I was doing all this crazy stuff, cooking drugs and just staying high. God called me from a prison cell. I was a homeless drug addict, and my hope was found in a needle. I was eight months pregnant, homeless, um, living out of my van. You know, it wasn't freeway that saved me, it wasn't John Stroop that saved me, but God uses freeway in such a mighty way as a tool to reach these people. There's not a community or a county in America that doesn't have a drug problem. And the, the church has the answer and it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. My name is John Stroop, and I want to welcome you to One Broken Life, where we explore the unique stories of individuals that have been on drugs and, and crime. You hear about the negative impact that drugs and crime uh, make on our cities and on our on, in our counties, fatherless homes and prisons that are full, but you don't hear about the impact that one radically changed drug addict can make when they get a hold, when the whole Lord gets a hold of their lives. And today I have a special guest with me. His name is Justin Moore. Hi. Thanks for coming on today, Justin. Thank you for having me. And so we have like a couple verses that we really use uh, to explain um, the lives and kind of our, our platform, our foundation through the scripture. And one of them is Psalms 5117. And David says in Psalms 5117, uh, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a, and a contrite heart. And so... Uh, I just think that's a powerful way to start the, the each episode out to just explain. Uh, the first episode will explain what brought you to your brokenness and what your brokenness looks like. Mm -hmm. And then the second episode, we'll kind of talk about what God is doing in your life now. And the, the stuff that we share on here, it really can't be made up or manufactured. And it's important for people to see, you know, because I hate to use the word normal because there is no such thing. But a lot of times people don't realize what folks have been through that come out of drugs and that come out of crime and addiction. And so that's why we're here today. We're going to explore your life. We're going to talk about your past. Uh, we're going to get into the nitty gritty and just let people see, um, you know, what, what that looked like. And so just could you give me just a few minutes, Justin, and explain to our people uh, what your life was like growing up? Um, I had a a good childhood. Um, I come from a family that is not involved in drugs and alcohol and crime and everything. And so I grew up uh, playing sports like football, uh, baseball, and then I was on uh, the wrestling team. And uh, so I just grew up doing sports and uh, it was, you know, I started playing Mighty Mites in first grade and I played all the way up through high school and then uh, was on the wrestling team. And I have a, a younger brother and a stepsister that uh, we just, you know, it was a normal childhood. So you had a very supportive family. Yeah. And you had everything. You had the American dream life. Yeah. And and so you're growing up. You're where? What? Where are you from? Rogersville. Rogersville, Missouri. Mm -hmm. And so you had the picket fence. Yeah. 
literally yeah how'd i guess that <laughs> and so you know you're 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 a good looking dude no not in a prison penitentiary type way <laughs> yeah. but just you know uh, athletic guy uh grew up playing sports mm-hmm. um and so i know your past but a little a lot of people don't know your past so let's talk about um when did you first start using drugs um in high school i think it, it was just kind of like uh uh, like social stuff, like on the weekends at house parties, uh, to smoke some weed or drink alcohol and just uh, like social events. It, it wasn't ever anything like, you know, doing it on a daily basis or anything. It was uh, a party. Yeah. Yeah. It was just the crowd I was running with. Uh, I found that I could, you know, get along with most all crowds. Like, you know, I'd be with the athletic kids and uh with you know get along with them but then i could also go and the crowds that you know were into weed and you know into doing drugs and drinking i could get along with them just as good and so i found myself doing that on the weekends so did you graduate high school yes okay so you graduated high school um and so let's kind of just you had you had a great childhood i talked to a lot of people and I, i try to explain to them Drug addiction doesn't care what color skin you have. Mm-hmm. It doesn't care what kind of economic background you have. It doesn't care what neighborhood you grow up in. Mm-hmm. It doesn't care how old you are, what gender you are. And 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 so it doesn't matter if you came from a good family. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it doesn't matter if you came from a bad family. So there's, it, it just, it's it, it doesn't care, right? Addiction doesn't care. It affects everybody. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that we talk about is, there's not a city in the county in America that doesn't have a drug problem. Yeah. And when I preach, a lot of times I talk to people, I'll tell them, I'll say, you, you think about this, what city and what county doesn't have a drug problem? And if you can think of one, you come tell me after the service. And I've never had anyone come to me and say, you know what, my, my town doesn't have a drug problem. <laughs> and so it's everywhere, right? Yeah. And, and so obviously you're on here because you've had some, some issues in the past. Yeah. That brought you to a place of brokenness to where you, you know, you had to repent and trust in Christ to, mm-hmm. to overcome those, those, um, those obstacles in life. But let's start, let's talk about when, did, when did your, when did your broke, what brought you to your brokenness? What can you kind of just give us a story of how you came from graduating high school and, you know, I know your story, but they don't. And then you, you know, you go out into your career and then you come to that broken place. Let's kind of talk through that. Um, well, I graduated high school and it was, you know, at the choice of, do I go to college or what do I do? And so I decided college wasn't for me and I'd always wanted to join the military. So I enlisted in the Marine Corps and, uh, Basically, I had some family that was in the Marine Corps, and uh, but it was so it was a combination of that, and uh, it was just the toughest branch in my opinion, and so that's the one I wanted to join, and I joined the Marine Corps, went to boot camp, and made it through boot camp, and then uh, went to my first duty station, and that was in uh, Washington D.C. So it was like I'm from a small town. Uh, you know, not really, never been to a big city like that. And here I am 18 years old in the middle of a big city like that. And, uh, Washington DC is a very rough place too. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's bars everywhere. And so 
what you do in the military is it's, you know, you just, you start drinking a lot. That's, you get off and you start to drink and that's just how the military works. So it was, it was drinking and then, uh, uh, traveling around, going to different, I got to go to a lot of different places. I ended up getting to go to Okinawa, Japan, which there, uh, when you're in a host country, you go by the, the drinking age that the host country set. So it's 18. So you can go out in town, drink, and you can drink on base. You know, it's, there's no drinking. I mean, you're just allowed to drink whatever age it is. So you start drinking a lot more. And then, uh, I ended up going to Afghanistan the first time. And when I went there, uh, we went to the northern part up by Kabul. And uh, it was not, it was a kind of short deployment. It wasn't very long. Uh, it was only about uh, four or five months. And then uh, so we were just up there helping build up the training of the Afghan army. And uh, after that, came back to the States and uh, was home for a little less than a year. And then I found out I was going back to Afghanistan uh, for a year this time. And it was me and 17 other Marines. And we were embedded with the Afghan army. And uh, our whole goal was to live with them and gain a, a rapport with them and train them. And so this was in 2012 when the big uh, push in Afghanistan was going on and wanted to... Uh, you know, get where we could leave and feel like we had enough security there. And uh, this deployment, we went to southern Afghanistan, Helmand Province, and it was a lot more, uh, a lot more eventful. Uh, there was, you know, it was a, there was IEDs everywhere. So on top of the Afghan soldiers that we were with, there was uh, kids that were stepping on them. And when we were in that area, like uh, we were the uh, they don't have medical, they don't have hospitals there that they can go. So when something like that happens, they bring them to us and we provide the best medical care we can for them. So you were in charge of prep, doing medical care for kids? Uh, I wasn't in charge. We had uh, Navy corpsmen that were, but there was only 17 of us. So it was every, pretty much every man, you know, all hands on deck whenever something like that happened. And uh, it would be, you know, sometimes it would be multiple, like, uh, uh, a vehicle would hit one. It wasn't ar armored, obviously. It was, you know, and so it would just be devastating on what would happen to everybody in it. And so there would be, I remember one time we had a, a tent and we, I think we had like 15 cots in it and every single cot had a, a person in it that was uh, just bleeding out and some of them were kids and adults and, and stuff like that. And so I was, uh, I think I was 20 or 21 at that time. And so I'd never, you know, I'd been to a funeral or something when I was a kid of a family member or something that passed away, but I'd never actually seen someone die right in front of me. And so like that, and that just went on for a year. And when I came back, I'd made the decision not to reenlist. Well, I only had uh, three months left in the military and so when I got out of the military, uh, I got back and I, I just did the process out of the military, you know, going and turning gear in and stuff like that. And so during that process, I started drinking a lot. I didn't, uh, 
I would just get off work and go back to my room and just drink and drink and uh, wake up and do it all over again the next day. And so I thought whenever I got out, I'd be back here with family and uh, friends and everything would, would get a lot better and stuff. But uh, it just, it was more of a party when I came home. I was, you know, reunited with friends I hadn't seen in a while. So it was just going out to the bars, drinking. And uh, so those friends, had, a lot of them uh, had got into, you know, meth and uh, uh, heroin and stuff like that. Well, you know, being drunk and stuff like I started experimenting with stuff like that. And uh, your decision making isn't very good when you're drunk. No. And uh, I was just, you know. And I was, it was, you know, it was nobody else's fault but mine. I was looking for a reason to, you know, to, I'd lost a sense of purpose and, uh, like, I was not goal-oriented anymore. I was more, you know, I just, I felt like I made a mistake getting out of the military. And uh, so I was kind of slipping into depression and uh, stuff like that. So after that, uh, you know, it wasn't long, and I was uh, went from just using meth to shooting it up. And uh, then uh, very soon after that, I was an everyday IV user of, of meth. But I still managed to get a, a pretty good job with a, at a quarry, and I was working. Uh, I was part of the union. I was doing, and I made it there a couple of years. But then I had to uh, do a UA one day. What's a UA? A urinalysis test. So a drug, drug test, test did yeah. You. And how old were you now? About 24, 23, 24. And how long had you been back home? Um, since I was about 20, so about two years. Thank you for your service. Thank you. It's a big deal. Mm-hmm. So you, you're strung out. You're functioning. You're a functioning addict. Mm-hmm. Functioning's very loose, right? Yeah. Because you really weren't. You're dysfunctional, but you're just hanging on. Yeah. Barely keeping your job. Barely. Calling into work sick, probably, and all that stuff, too. Uh, showing up late a lot. Yeah. And so now you get drug tested. Mm-hmm. You lose your job. Mm-hmm. Now what? Uh, that was... I. First, I'd never been fired before, so it was like a, a big shock. Second was... Uh, my uncle worked there too and uh he's worked there for over 20 years so uh i felt like i'd really let him down um so i was sitting at uh a person's house that i used to get meth from that day or that night i was sitting there and i was just feeling sorry for myself i'm like i don't you know i don't know what i'm gonna do now and this guy looked at me and he said well you're gonna have to figure something out and so he went to his room and he pulled out uh, this Tupperware from under his bed and it had these huge uh, shards of meth in it. And he handed me a, a bunch of meth and a pistol and he said, you can start selling meth and support your habit like that. So that's what I did. I started selling meth for a while and uh, uh, just, he, you know, he basically had more than he wanted to handle. So he just started giving me people to meet. And I went around, just started selling meth, and uh, it you know worked like that for a while. 
So what about your mom? I know she's a big supporter of you. And then your stepdad, Mm -hmm. very involved in your life. Yeah, and they don't have anything to do with, uh, you know, they don't understand that life at all. They don't. uh, So when I started slipping down it, uh, at first it would be, you know, she would, she would try to, you know, call me and uh, at first it was like a big fight between us. Like, you know, she would try to be involved in my life and I didn't have anything good to say about my life. So, you know, she really had no place there. So I would, it caused a big distance between us. And I mean, they could definitely tell something was going on. And, uh, you know, and then I started going to jail a lot. And so there was really no hiding it after that. Uh, so where were you living at? I was living here in Springfield. You weren't living with them? No. Okay. Mm. So you're, you're a drug dealer now. Mm-hmm. You're an IV meth user. Yeah. And you're, you're jobless. Yep. So a lot of times when people would see somebody in your situation say, this guy's showing up late for work, he's not doing a very good job, obviously he's using drugs, they just look at him like, man, what's wrong with this guy? Mm-hmm. What they don't see is the the other stuff that happened. Mm-hmm. And, and I believe this, I say this a lot, drugs are not the problem. Drug, well, excuse me, drugs are the problem. Mm-hmm. Drug addiction is not the problem. Drug addiction is what you see. Mm-hmm. So your problem wasn't your drug addiction. Yeah. Drug addiction is what you've seen. Yeah. Your problem was under that drug addiction. Yeah. And that's what, that's that, that, um, that sin issue and that heart issue. And you needed to come to that broken place. Mm-hmm. And that's where you were headed, right? Yep. You're headed to the broken place. Oh, yeah. So let's talk about that. So you're dr- selling drugs, uh, running and gunning, mm-hmm. carrying a gun. A lot of times, yeah. A lot of times. Um, and so what's what happens next? Uh, I start falling more and more into that lifestyle. Uh, I've completely surrounded my peop- myself with people that uh, are only involved in that type of stuff. Um, I'm in and out of jail a lot. Uh, and so eventually uh, heroin use starts coming in. And whenever the heroin used to start coming in, uh, I couldn't even manage to sell drugs properly. Like it was, you know, everything went to heroin. And even if I was trying to sell meth, it was just selling meth to, to buy heroin with. And then so. You're messing the drug dealer's money up. Oh, yeah. Bad. Yeah. He's mad at you now. Yeah. And now you're ducking him and going to another drug dealer. Yep. Okay. Figured. <laughs> and so here you are. You, you, all the drug dealers are mad at you now. You're burning all your bridges. Yep. You owe everybody money. Yeah. And you are just, you got track marks up and down your arm. Mm-hmm. Robbing so, Peter to pay Paul. Robbing Peter to pay Paul. <laughs> trying to figure out how to get out of the hole. Yep. Um, lying, conniving, manipulating. Mm-hmm. Mom's giving you money. Uh, she got to the point she wouldn't give me money anymore, but I could manipulate into getting, you know, food or something. You know, it, she, she would draw the line at money but uh i could still manage to get some stuff out of her and uh just manipulate whoever came in my path to uh give me anything that i could use so yeah and so let's talk about that so how many times how many times have you uh so before we even get into this let's talk about your darkest moment like you know 
I don't want to glorify the devil. I'm mm-hmm. not going to be his DJ today and play his music. Mm-hmm. But what about that dark place? Like, you know, we all have it. I can I can I can mention a couple of things to really describe my dark place. Like mm-hmm. um and and I ask people to do this so so our listeners can kind of get an idea of the depravity mm-hmm. of what where drugs take you. Uh for me, I'll just tell you my my dark place was um I stunk so bad that you could smell smell my feet through my shoes. And uh when I when I I used to have a place in the in the projects I used to live I didn't live, but I slept there sometimes. And the only reason I got to sleep there is because I always had something to give them to let me sleep there, you know, mm-hmm. some dope. And I remember when I would go there, they would make me take my shoes and socks off and put them in a trash bag, tie the trash bag, and put the trash bag on the front porch and go immediately take a bath. Mm-hmm. That's how bad I was. Yeah. And uh, and that that right there description of who I used to be gives somebody an idea of how far gone I was Yeah. and where God has brought me from. So what when you think about that dark moment in your life, what's yours? Uh it's I lost my place to live. Um I still had a uh an explorer that my dad had bought for me and I'm living in it. Uh I'm strung out on heroin, stealing everything that's not bolted down to trade for heroin. And uh I'm Bouncing around from trap house to trap house, uh, just, you know, I would feel like I was wearing my welcome out so many times, and then I would eventually just go stay in my Explorer in a parking lot, uh, you know, for a few nights, and then start bouncing around again, or just, you know, find friends that uh, just wanted to run around and, and commit crimes all night, so it was something to do, you know, I didn't have to necessarily find somewhere to stay, I was out doing something. So it was, uh, uh, it felt productive to me, but, uh, I was overdosing on heroin a lot. Um, just happened to be that every time I did, there was someone there and either gave me Narcan or, uh, called a few times. The paramedics came, uh, one time the, uh, fire department came. And so that's a buzzkill, isn't it? Yeah. The fire department to come and yeah. show up at your dope house. Yeah. I'm sure they really wanted you to stick around after that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, well, one time it happened twice in the same day. And, uh, um, so I just had no care for anybody else. It was all about me. And I didn't have a care that if I, you know, it really didn't even cross my mind that if anybody wasn't there, what would happen? And, uh, I would use heroin alone too. I would, you know, uh, I would, you know, wake up and have been nodded out and not even know for how long and, uh, could have easily been one of those times, but I was, uh, so far down in my addiction that I just didn't even care anymore. I didn't really want to live, but I didn't have the willpower to do it myself. I sat there with, a pistol f- several nights and just wanted to end it all. But, uh, something wouldn't let me. Um, I didn't, this, I didn't have any type of relationship with God, but, uh, I believed there was something else out there. And so every time I would think about it, I didn't, 
I've always heard that, uh, you know, if you commit suicide, you go straight to hell. It's a unforgivable sin. And I think that's what caused what's, you know, kept me from doing it a couple of times. I don't see that in the Bible, though. Yeah. That's but, more Hollywood yeah. idea. But I didn't know anything about the Bible. Thank that's God. Because yeah. then you would have probably done it. Oh, I would have, yeah. Wow. It, but uh, just something wouldn't let me do it. How many times do you think you overdosed? Um, where paramedics and stuff showed up, I think about four times. Where other people were able to save me without the paramedics coming, I can't tell you. I don't. I couldn't count on two hands. So, um, so let's just kind of look at this for a moment, right? I, I believe, you know, you hear about terrorism. You mm-hmm. are a product, right, of yeah. fighting terrorism. Yeah. Like you went to a country where terrorism has bred. Yeah. And you think about the planes flying into buildings. You think about bombers which are horrible situations, and it's a real thing. But the real terrorism is drug dealing and drug addicts. Yeah. Domestic terrorism is drug drug dealers and drug addicts. And so uh, you think about you and your past, right? You have how, how much money, how much money do you think you spend on drugs a day? Um, well, I know whenever I was using heroin, it was at least uh, – uh, two or three hundred dollars a day on heroin just to keep from being sick. Okay, so that's a slow day. Yeah. How about a big day? Oh, uh, I mean, what's an average a day? Probably three or four hundred dollars. Four hundred dollars a day. Yeah. So what's seven times four? Uh, Come on, you're in college, <laughs> man. Let's hear it. What's seven times four? Uh, twenty-eight. Twenty-eight. So twenty-eight hundred dollars a week. Yeah. Did you have a job? No. How'd you get your drugs? Uh, I was stealing cars and. Okay. Here's uh, where I'm headed. Yeah. So you're committing crime. Yeah. To support your drug addict. Yeah. Tra- drug habit. Mm-hmm. Okay. So my friend Matt Kenobi, God rest his soul, <laughs> he used to say an average criminal commits a hundred times as a li- hundred crimes in his lifetime. Set it clear mm-hmm. so our people can hear it. The average criminal commits 100 crimes in their lifetime, which I think is higher than 100. Yeah. So all your f- friends are all committing crime, too. Yeah. And you're all, you all have, you got to, I'm talking about thousands of dollars a week worth of crime and theft and damage. The property damage from the crime is higher than that, right? Yeah. Breaking windows, stealing cars, yeah. insurance, you know, costing insurance company and costing taxpayers money. Mm-hmm. So... When you, when you can help somebody, the only way you can change crime is if you change a criminal. Yeah. And so you're an ex-criminal. Yeah. Not criminal anymore, but you were, you're an ex-criminal. I was. So you're committing enough crime to support a $2,800 a week drug habit. Yeah. And how many friends were you committing crimes with? Oh. Uh, Tons. Yeah. And they're all doing the same thing. Yeah. And, and so... Let's talk about that. So you, you go to prison how many times? Uh, twice. Twice. Mm-hmm. So the first time you get out and you just go right back to your vomit like a dog. Uh, basically, yeah. When I was in there, I got out and I told my... But while I was in there, I, nothing changed either. I was still running around, uh, getting high in prison, um, running with the wrong people to, you know, not to... There's people in there that are trying to do right, and I could have been running with them, but instead I was right there with 
the people that had no intentions of doing good. Because it's not where you're from, it's where you're at. Yeah. And we attract our whatever we're maturity attracts maturity and yeah. immaturity attracts immaturity. Oh yeah. So if you're looking you're looking for those people. Yeah. Because that's a mentality mentality. Yep. So you come out with a crash dummy helmet on. Yeah. I well I told myself, look, I'm gonna you know, I wanna do better. And I for this time I did uh for two days. Uh lasted two days. And then the first thing that uh upset me and you know, the first life event that, you know, I thought was the end of the world, I just ran right back to the dope house. Have you been to treatment before? Yes. How many times? Uh, I think about four times of treatment through the VA. Okay. And so, so you get out, you're looking for a reason to get high. Yeah. And so as soon as you got one, you're using again. Yep. And you're, you're a victim. You're blaming everybody else. Yep. Right. Mm -hmm. So what's it like? What's it like trying to get sober without Jesus? It's a nightmare. Uh, you know, before I'd ever tried to get sober with Jesus, I just thought that it was, you know, it was more of a trial and error thing. And you go in there and you do it enough times and maybe hopefully uh, something sticks and you pick up that one bit of information that you need to hear and that time it'll work, you know, but because you get in there and you hear all these people that have been in there. Oh man, this is my seventh time treatment, you know, uh, I lasted nine months this time, you know, I'm getting better, uh, you know, and that's the mentality. Like you're in treatment and you're just, you're hoping that, you know, if you put enough effort into this treatment, you're going to get something out of it to where you, uh, you, you get out and you do good this time. I'm going to give you the definition of addiction, uh, from a secular point view, point, point of view. Mm -hmm. Addiction is a disease that can never be cured, but only be managed. And, and that, that's, that's a secular worldview. And, and I don't have anything against people who count their sober days. Yeah. Nothing against do it, do whatever you have to do to be victorious. Right. Mm -hmm. If that's what works for you, counting your sober days, you know, a friend of mine, David Stoker says, uh, dead people don't get saved. And so if you're staying sober with a secular worldview and you're not a Christian, keep staying sober, right? Praise the Lord. Stay sober. Yeah. But to me, personally, counting your, your days is almost like a countdown to relapse. Mm -hmm. I made it nine months. Yeah. You know, next time we're going to go a little higher. So, um, so anyways, uh, so you're trying to stay sober. You can't stay sober. Um, you, 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 I'm, I'm trying to stay in the BC side before we go to the after Christ side. Yeah. So you go to prison again. Mm. And and you have children too. Yeah. How many kids do you have? I have three. Three kids, mm -hmm. and two of them are local. Mm -hmm. uh, and so they're affected, right? Yeah. Your family's affected. Your children are affected. Your mom's affected. Your stepdad is like a dad to you, right? Yeah. He's Tony, right? Yep. And, and he he's on your side. He loves you, and mm -hmm. they don't know how to help you. They're affected. So now you go to prison. And this is the second prison sentence is kind of where I came into the picture without even realizing it because I remember your mom and your dad used to come at our old building at Freeway. Yeah. And uh, and they would say she would, I remember her so clearly weeping for you. And she would pray and she would ask for prayer and she would cry. And 
And I remember her mm-hmm. and uh, she just didn't know what to do, you know? Yeah. And so here you are in prison. So you, 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 what happened to you? What, what made you been to treatment four times? You already been to prison, you know? Uh, and so you go back again and what happened? Uh, well, I had, so when I got out of prison the first time, I, you know, went through a couple overdoses that put my, put me on the radar from my PO, uh, a couple what's of, a, what's a PO uh, probation officer. Okay. So, uh, I got, and then ended up going back to jail for a week. The judge released me to go to treatment. I went to treatment and they sent me home early. Well, my probation officer said that I'd left early. So it was just a whole combination of things. I had a court date. I went to that court date, not even expecting to go to prison. And uh, the judge sentenced me to prison that day. Praise the Lord. Yeah. And uh, so. You wasn't praising the Lord that day. I was not, no. (laughs) (laughs) You had plans that day. Yeah. You tried to get an extension. Yeah. Well, because of COVID, they kept extending me, extending (laughs) me, extending me. And so I went into that one, you know not really thinking I was going to prison. And when I did, I was just, you know, it, I was, I didn't even know what to do. So I get to Fulton and I'm sitting there and all of a sudden I get, uh, I get, I talked to my family on the outside and they said, Oh, your attorney uh, said that the judge is willing to overturn your sentence. If you get accepted into veterans court, which is the same as a drug court here. It's just only accepts veterans. Well, I'd been trying to get in this program for a year. And so I, I'm like, okay, well, so I'm sitting in a cell by myself one day and I'm just, I don't know what else to do. I'm like, I'm tired of this life. I'm tired of sitting here. Uh, I'm tired of uh, going through this. So I just, I put my hands up and I surrendered to Jesus and I asked him to come into my life. And I told us, said that, you know, I don't know what to do. I need your help. And uh, if you help me through this, I'll spend the rest of my life doing what uh, you, whatever it is you want me to do. And I, I'm crying, doing it. You know, I don't even know what this feeling is. And uh, uh, But right there, something changed. Uh, I asked for a Bible, and I'm just, uh, I don't know, you know, I'm, writing the chaplain every other day, trying to get different devotionals. You know, I just, all I wanted to do was read the Bible. All I wanted to do was read books on, on Christ. And I'm trying to ask everybody in there, you know, what's this? I'd read a part in the Bible. I'm like, what's this mean? And, you know, I get seven different answers and, uh, been there. And so I'm just trying to learn about the Bible. And, uh, then I get a couple of weeks later, I get a phone call and I got accepted into the, the program. So they're, they're releasing me early from jail or from prison. When was that? Uh, that was in January of this year. What year is it? 2021. 2021. And so January, it's, and right now it's November. Mm-hmm. And so um, you, you've been out of a prison almost 11 months now? Yep. Okay. And so you get out of prison, and uh, what happens when you get out of prison? What's life? What's, what's different this time? Um. I'm sitting there, uh, nobody knows I'm out yet, and I'm like, I don't know what to do. You know, I don't know what my new like, next step is. I've never been to church really before. I don't have a church that I just know I can go to. Uh, I know about Freeway. Let's stop right there. We're going to have them hang on. All right. Okay? Okay. 
because it's going to get good. Yeah. This is the good side. We're going to talk about, you know, uh, what God is doing, what God did do, and what God is continuing to do through you, brother. Yeah. And so I'm proud of you. Thank you. Uh, Philippians 1.12 is one of our theme verses for the podcast. Mm. It's um, He says, Paul says, uh, the things I want you to know, brothers, the things which have happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. Mm-hmm. And the things that he's talking about is incarceration, being in prison, being chained up. And, and he says later, my chains are in Christ. You know, God put me in that in that prison cell, and God did that for you too. Mm-hmm. If you've enjoyed our podcast today, uh, I would encourage you to subscribe, share, like. Uh, this is a production of Freeway Ministries. Um, if you want to support us and help us continue to reach one broken life at a time, you can go to our website at freeway-ministries.com. You can support us with a one-time gift, or you can become a monthly partner of ours. Uh, Thank you, Justin, for hanging with me today. Thank you. And I'm excited for part two. Me too. We'll see you guys back.